Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Gospel Saving Church. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. 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 Praise be to God. Thank you for joining me at my house in McKinney, Texas, as we have another beautiful day that the Lord has given us. We can rejoice and be glad in it. January, it's January 4th, 2015. Welcome, everybody, and Happy New Year to everybody in my home and everybody coming from SoundCloud all over the world. Happy New Year. It's our very first Sunday after the New Year. I hope everybody had a safe, happy New Year and that you used that day to glorify God and uh, maybe you went to church or something if your church had a service or something. I, I, know, I just know we have a brand new year to serve the Lord. It doesn't have to be like last year. It can be a better year. If you had a bad year in 2014, it could be a better year in 2015, if you so choose. <clears throat> a very famous quote from a very famous pastor, Pastor Chuck Swindoll. Life is 90, I think it's, uh, it goes like this. Life is 95% how you handle things and only 5% what happens to you. Something along those lines. Life is, you don't have to, the idea behind it is, you don't have to allow your situations and your circumstances to bring you down. You can overcome those things. And how do we do that? We can overcome them in in Christ. We don't have to let our situations and our circumstances beat us down. We can rise above them. We can ask God for help. and, And we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So let that be your motto in 2015. So anyway, if you guys want to join me in a word of prayer... And we can get our service going today. <clears throat> if you join me, please, I ask the Lord to, to bless our service and make it a bountiful one. Lord, <clears throat> thank you so much for this beautiful day. Thank you so much, Lord, for all that you do for us, for all that you've done for us, and all that you will do for us, Lord. Lord, you, it is your good desire to give good gifts to your children, Lord. And you are good, Lord, and your mercy endures forever, Lord, even to the world and all those that even aren't yours today. And so, Lord, I just pray that, I just lift up this service to you, Lord, today, and I just pray that you would use it, Lord, and your Holy Spirit would open up the eyes of the people that are listening and help them to realize the truth about who Jesus Christ is, dear God. Thank you for all the words that you give us in your Holy Word. Thank you for all... Oh, the prophecy and all the proofs that we have in your word that show us the reality of who Jesus Christ really is. Please bless my mouth today, Lord, and may it speak, Lord, the words that you want it to speak, Lord. May your Holy Spirit teach us, and may your Holy Spirit draw those that aren't yours today, Lord, to you. Open their eyes. Show them who Jesus Christ really is. Bless this message, Lord. Bless our time together, Lord, and keep the distractions away from us. We love you and we praise you, dear God. And we ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. We're going to be today, you can turn if you'd like, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 53. Now I know I'm breaking the norm, but um, it needed to be done. God led me to do that this week. So we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 53. We're actually going to read over the whole entire chapter. Isaiah chapter 53. And I'll go through it after my thoughts from last week. Jesus curses the fig tree, but why? Remember we talked about how the religious leaders, they had an outward appearance of glory and of beauty. But inwardly, remember what Jesus said, 
and I believe it was Matthew chapter 23, they were full of dead men's bones. And then the fig tree kind of represented what's going to happen to them because they're really, they have an appearance of beauty, but, but they're not. They're not really godly, but they try to look godly. It's a fake appearance of godliness. It reminds me, as I was setting up a little bit for this message, that you know the religious leaders having this outward appearance of righteousness, but not being on the inside, and that not really being what God wanted. God doesn't really want anybody to just look religious on the outside, but then, you know, spiritual deadness on the inside. Jesus said, cleanse the inside of the cup first, and then the outside will follow. And this is what we read in Scripture. And it reminds me of a very popular passage in the Bible. It's Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 and 10. You know, it's for by grace that we are saved through faith. And that not of works, at least anyone should boast. It's a gift from God. It's a gift of God. Salvation can never be earned by the best works that you can ever do. Works, in fact, don't even play a part in salvation at all, the Bible says. It's by grace that you are saved through faith. God's free gift of grace, His free gift of salvation... Poured out upon mankind. That's grace. A free gift. Something we don't deserve. Grace is getting what you do not deserve. By your faith, you trust, putting your trust in God, taking a step of repentance, starting to believe in Him, stopping believing in all the other things that you believed in, starting to believe in Christ and His salvation, and surrendering your life over to Him. The, the religious Pharisees and the religious leaders, they didn't do this. They tried to work out their salvation by their works that they, you know, the religious works that they tried to make people think that they did. They tried to give this appearance. They, they were trying to do these, these righteous in their own eyes works. But unfortunately, that isn't what God wanted at all. I have this little equation that God gave me upon Ephesians 2, 8, 9. A lot of the world thinks it's God's grace plus works equals salvation. Okay, God gave the grace, God gave the salvation, and now how do I get to it? Well, i got to work really hard, and i got to make God really happy by all the good works that I can do, and then I can be saved. Well, that would be grace plus works equals salvation. But Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says it's by grace that you're saved through faith, and then God's preparing you for works that shall be done. Okay, So the real equation that the Pharisees missed, and that a lot of people even miss today, is the real equation is grace plus faith equals works. You see, by God giving His grace, and then by you just repenting and putting your trust in Him, and turning to Him, naturally out of yourself, out of your body, out of your actions, will come works of righteousness. You won't have to really, it's, it's not something you have to like, oh, I've got to do these things in order to be saved. They're, they're more like, they just naturally start to come. I naturally now want to talk to God. I naturally now want to get into His Word. I naturally now want to, I want to follow God. It's not that I want to do it because I have to do it, because, oh my gosh, if I don't do these things, oh, I won't be saved. It's, Now that I am saved, now that I put my faith in Him, now that I repented and turned to Him, 
Now it's just naturally, I just desire to do those new things. So, you know, we always have to be looking. It's very easy to get off track. Most of the major world religions today believe in a grace plus works equals salvation doctrine. And that is a doctrine of the devil. Because you see, if it is by works that you are saved, it's not by God's grace alone. And it's not by your faith alone. Now it's something that can be earned before God. And salvation, righteousness before God can never be earned before God. It has to be, you have to put your faith and your trust in Him and turn to Him in repentance. And that's what God wants. And then if you do that, you won't be like the religious Pharisees where they had an outward appearance of, of righteousness even though they weren't, but and they were full of dead men's bones on the inside. You can make the inside of the cup clean, and then the outward works will just follow as a natural thing. So that's what God really wants. He doesn't want the other. He wants you to be purified on the inside, and then come to be, and then the purified, awesome, godly works will flow afterwards. And that's the religious leaders missed it, and most of the religious people today, most of the world's missing it today. So now you know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. You could check it out yourself, and you could check out that little equation. Grace plus faith equals works. And it's not no other way than that. So praise God. Let's move forward into today's message. The message title is, Is Christ Jesus the Real Jewish Messiah? Or you could say, is Jesus Christ the real Jewish Messiah? We're going to read over Isaiah chapter 53. We're going to read over the whole chapter. Like I said, it's a little bit different. Normally we'd be in Matthew right now. Normally we'd be reading about Jesus actually uses, there's a lesson that he gives the disciples about the fig tree afterwards, after it's done, after they see it withered. That'll be next week. This week though, with all that we've been talking about, Our main themes over the last several weeks have been what? They've been Jesus proclaiming himself Messiah. Jesus doing things that were showing the people, hey, look, I'm Messiah. That's been our common theme. And that's really been a theme all the way throughout Matthew. Jesus doing things, saying things that were kind of trying to bring people to the idea of, I'm the real Messiah. We looked at some of those scriptures last week about how Christ showed and all the different things that he said and many things that he did. He outwardly said, hey, look, I'm the Son of God. Hey, look, I'm this. Hey, look, I'm the Jewish Messiah. Hey, look, hey, look, hey, look. But you see, we've talked about proof behind that and about how he did the healings and how, you know, he showed the proof behind the pudding. He rode on the donkey to show. But, you know, Him being Messiah, the real Jewish Messiah, has been one of the most debated things since Christ came. Muslims believe he's just a prophet. Jews believe he was really just a crazy man and that people exalted him to be uh, this son of God, Messiah figure. But is Jesus Christ the real Jewish Messiah? And what proof do we actually have that backs that up? Well, today I feel led by the Lord. So this is what the Lord gave me this week. So, you know, since this has been a theme, show the people what my word says about Christ being the Messiah. 
not just by what Jesus said, but did he actually fulfill messianic prophecy? See, prophecy is one of the main things in the Bible that we can look at is to find, is Christ the real Messiah or who is the real Jewish Messiah? Because anybody can stand up and just say, hey, I'm the one. Follow me, I'm the Messiah. I'm the promised one of God. I'm the Savior of the world. I could, I could do it today. <laughs> and sickeningly, m- many people would probably follow me because that's what's seen historically. There's been a lot of people that have stood up in history, believe it or not, and this is very true, you can look it up yourself, that have claimed to be the Christ, that have claimed to be the Messiah. There's been people all over the world that have done it since Jesus came. So is, or I should say was, but is he still, was Jesus really who he said that he was? And we're going to look at a very controversial chapter in the Jewish Tanakh called the book of Isaiah. And we're going to look at chapter 53 in specific. And we're going to see what the Bible, what God's word has to say about the Messiah. And we're going to look and see, did Jesus match up with the things that God said the Messiah was supposed to do? So if you want to go to Isaiah chapter 53, I'm going to talk about it. I want to let you know that um, this book, this this prophet lived in the Old Testament. It was an Old Testament prophet of the Jews. He was a very rejected prophet of the Jews. The Jews did not really accept him then, but yet his prophecies and his book made it into the Tanakh because after the fact, the Jews saw, wow, this guy was from God. Even though he was saying things to us that we really didn't like, The things that he said that were going to come came to pass. That's got to be from God, because only God can know the future. We can't know the future. We're just people. We're just human beings. But God can know the future. God can know the end from the beginning. That's what the Bible says. God knows the end from the beginning. So in this chapter, Isaiah chapter 53, written six to 800 years before Christ lived, We're going to read about what God had to say about the real Jewish Messiah. And we're going to look and see if Jesus Christ really matched up with who God said that he would have to be. So if you want to go to Isaiah 53, I'm going to start in verse 1. And we're just going to talk about it as we go. Isaiah 53, verse 1. The Bible starts out, Who has believed our report? If you remember correctly, as Jesus walked around in his ministry, people were unbelieving at at first that, you know, is this the real Messiah? I believe it was Philip where one of the disciples came to Philip and said, Philip, we found the Messiah. And he says, oh, who who is this Messiah? So it's ironic that Isaiah 53 starts out, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Listen to the description of this Messiah that God proclaims here in this whole chapter. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. Now the the word him there in my translation of the New King James Version is capitalizes it with an H. So it's a capital him. So that would mean that that's a hymn that's important hymn. That's not just in any hymn. That's not just a regular guy. Whenever you see a capital hymn, that means God. 
So look at verse 2 again now. For he, again a capital H, so this is two capital H's now, but two different people. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. Capital H for he, capital H for him. So somebody's growing up before God as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. The Messiah was supposed to be the root or the son of Jesse, the root of Jesse. It's ironic that Isaiah uses those words. And as a root out of dry ground, he has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus, it's said in the, in the, in the word that he wasn't this, he didn't come, remember how we read about how he came on a lowly donkey, on a colt. He was a plain man. He, he was not anything special in his day. People didn't look upon him and say, oh, wow, look at how gorgeous he is. There's no, in fact, there's no recording of his statue or stature at all. We don't read if he was tall. We don't read if he was short. We don't read that he was handsome, but we also don't read that he was ugly. When details like that are left out, then there was really nothing in that category that people had to say, wow, this guy, wow, look at the, he was, he, he was tall and handsome. You know, in, in scripture, we read about different characteristics of people, but we don't read of any charming or handsome features of Christ Jesus when he lived. But he has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. Look at verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. When you look at the we here, this is Israel. Did Israel as a whole accept Jesus Christ? No, they did not. Is Israel to this day accepting of Jesus Christ? They absolutely are not. We just got done talking about last week and the week before how the religious leaders hated him. They despised him. They saw his good works. They saw his wonderful works. And what did they do? They despised him. That was right out of Matthew chapter 21 last week. They despised him. They hated him for the good works that he did and for the praise that he got from the children, remember? Look at here. He was despised and rejected by man. A man of sorrows. Jesus walked around and his heart was grieved at the hardness of these people's hearts that did not accept him. Jesus was a man of sorrows. He didn't have much joy. Okay? Because nobody as a whole, the main people that were supposed to be proclaiming him, rejected him. Verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Jesus came to bear the sins of the world on his back. Look at here. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet, on the cross, when he was on the cross, being crucified, 
the religious leaders were gathering around him and they said, look at him, come down. If you really are the Son of God, come down from there. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, and we esteemed him. We looked upon him, stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. They claimed that if he didn't come down, that he wasn't the real Messiah. They claimed them. They thought God had rejected him, that he wasn't the true Messiah because he wasn't delivered from the cross. He, he did not come down off the cross. Verse 5, this is where it really gets interesting. But he was wounded for our transgressions. Transgression is a type of sin, in case you wonder. Transgression is a type of sin. And this he, which is a capital here in verse 5, was wounded for our sins. What happened to Jesus? What happened to him? They came. He was betrayed by Judas. The Romans came. They brought him before Pontius Pilate. They brought him before these, these, these hearings. And what happened? He was getting beaten up. They were smacking him in the face. They were spitting in his face. They were, they were hurting him. Why? Right here. He was wounded for our transgressions. What happened to him eventually? He was nailed to a cross. And he eventually died for, the Bible says in the New Testament, for the sin of the world. He was bruised for our iniquities. Another sin. Type of sin. Iniquity is another type of sin. The chastisement or the punishment, you could say, that that word chastisement means punishment. The chastisement or punishment for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. Jesus was beaten, whipped, thrashed, murdered. And the New Testament claims it was for the sins of the world. Jesus said, I do this to make a new covenant, the covenant in my blood. What's the new covenant? The new covenant? The new covenant to get rid of, to be able to take care of our sins. Jesus said this himself. The New Testament writers all back this up in all the Gospels. Verse 5, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. What happened to Jesus with the disciples? The disciples all fled from him when they attacked Jesus, when they arrested him, when he was betrayed. No disciple stood with him. They all fled from him. They all ran and he stood on trial and he faced death all by himself. Pretty interesting descriptions here. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And look at the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There's never been a man in history. There's never been a figure in history that claimed to die for the sins of the nation of Israel or to die for the sins of the world. Not, not one ever. Only Christ Jesus. All these other messiahs that have come and gone since Christ has lived and died and been crucified and rose again. None of them ever suffered and died for what they did, for who they proclaimed to be. 
They all were just these mighty, they, they were this, these men, and they wanted, they wanted praise from people, so people lifted them up, <clears throat> they proclaimed themselves to be something, and none of them ever, 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 number one, said, I'm the Son of God. None of them ever, number two, said, I'm going to die for the sins of people. I'll allow this evil to happen to me for the sins of the world. Jesus proclaimed it. The New Testament writers proclaimed it. And here in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6, we read that this was something that the Messiah, the real Jewish Messiah, was supposed to go through, was supposed to do. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of of us all, or the sin of us all. Verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before it shears the silence. So he opened not his mouth. As they were proclaiming him guilty, as they were taking him away, as they were going to crucify him, as he was being led as a lamb to the slaughter, he did not complain. He did not raise his voice and say, this is not for me. I'm not the one you should be doing this to. I'm your savior. He didn't, what you'd say, stand up for his rights. He allowed himself to be taken. He allowed himself to be whipped. He allowed himself to be beaten. And he allowed himself to be crucified. And he allowed himself to die. All without complaining about it. All without murmuring about it and all without standing up for his rights. Even though they had no right to do this to him, they did it to him anyway. And he didn't ever once complain about it or say, this is not right. You guys have got the wrong man. Turn me loose on the Savior of the world. He kept his mouth silent. And yet, he was oppressed. And he was afflicted, and he didn't open his mouth. Verse 8, look at what happens here to this Messiah of Isaiah chapter 53. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression, or you could say sin, of my people. He was stricken. So, what happened to Jesus? The, the, the gospel accounts record that when they came and got him and Judas betrayed him, they took him and they bound him in shackles and they led him before the judgment. They led him, they led him to these trials. Okay? Where during these trials he was accused and he was mocked and he was beaten and they oppressed him and they afflicted him and all this stuff they did to him when he went to these trials. From these trials, these unrighteous trials, what happened to him? They took him, they whipped him and beat him, and then they sent him to the cross where he what? He died. They crucified him. He bled to death, suffocated to death. However you want to say that he died, he died. He yielded up his spirit and he died. Verse 8, he was taken from prison and from judgment. They judged him and he was cut off from the land of the living. He was murdered. For, the Bible says here, the Messiah would, for the sin or transgression of my people, he was stricken. Now, so after this, that's not the end of the story, though, of course we know. The New Testament says there's a little bit more. After he was murdered, after they took him down from the cross, they went and they did what? 
They put him in this tomb. They buried him in a tomb. It wasn't a regular burial, though. They put him in a tomb. Look at verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Now, his grave, where he died, he died with two other sinners. He was crucified in the middle of two other sinners. And that's where he died. That was his grave. Okay? But with the rich at his death. Not just anybody was laid in a tomb, guys. Only rich, wealthy people got a tomb. The normal, average person in that day got a hole in the ground. Or, if you were really nothing, they might have just thrown you somewhere and just left you to just let your body rot. But you see, not everybody got a tomb. A tomb that was expensive. That was for rich people. Because that was a tomb that they had to, they had to hew out the rock. They had to dig out the rock and make a hole in the side of a mountain or in the side of a, a rock wall. And that's where Jesus was buried. Yet, we know what about him? That he wasn't a rich man. Jesus was the poor son of a carpenter. He did no way deserve a burial in a tomb. Yet here the Messiah said that his grave would be with the wicked. We know he was crucified with the unrighteous. But with the rich at his death, he was buried in a tomb meant for a rich man. Interesting. And look at because. Why? He had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. The Bible declares in the New Testament that Christ never sinned once. He never complained once. He never sinned once. He never committed iniquity. He never committed transgression. He was perfect and spotless from the day he was born to the day he died. He never committed any sin at all. Nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. Verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. So that's what we know happened to Christ. The New Testament writers declare it. The Bible says in prophecy here that the Messiah was going to go through it. And this is what we see happen to Jesus in the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then upon that, you have all the epistles in the book of Revelation where we see pictures and writings of the disciples and a picture of the Lamb that was slain in the book of Revelation that show these things to be Jesus. And these disciple writers, or these disciples that wrote the Gospels, all proclaim these things that Christ went through. Now look at what happens here, though. We just got his soul that was an offering for sin, and then he was cut off from the land of the living. Now look at also verse 10. There's a little, that was the end of a sentence there. When you make his soul an offering for sin, period, or comma, excuse me, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Well, now, we just read that this Messiah was dead. He was cut off from the land of the living. He made his soul an offering for sin. This is death. But yet, here in verse 10, it says that he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days. How is that possible? If you die, how can your days be prolonged? It's impossible. Once you're dead, you're dead, right? 
Well, not quite, because you see right here in verse 10, we see that the Messiah wasn't going to stay dead. He was going to be brought back to life. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And, and since Christ left, we talked about this two or three weeks ago. Since Christ left, he's still popular in the face of the planet. Over 90% of the earth's population, I estimate, knows about Jesus Christ. Yet he was the poor son of a carpenter. There are still people that are Christians to this day. He died almost 2,000 years ago. He was a nobody in the flesh. How is it possible? How is it possible that people are still getting saved? How is it possible that people still know about this Messiah? People still know about this man named Jesus who was a nothing of a nothing in his day physically. A son of a carpenter, that deserves about as much respect as the son of a garbage man. There's no respect due there. He was just a poor man. Yet, 90 plus percent of the world's population in 2015 know about the poor son of a carpenter? Of course we see, even today, that Christ Jesus, although he was nothing and he was esteemed not by men, we see that this very day, 2015, January 4th, that this plain Jane simple man in the flesh has now been exalted over the whole world. People are still coming to him. People still see. People still know Jesus Christ. People are still worshiping him as God. Verse 10, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And what's God's pleasure? That people get saved. Wow. Verse 11, he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. Wow. Look at that. People are still becoming Christians to this day all over the world and in mighty ways too. Verse 11 goes on to say, by his knowledge... My righteous servant shall justify many. What does that mean? By the knowledge of Christ, by the intimate, by the saving knowledge of Christ, people are getting saved. We're justified not of works, but we're justified in God's eyes by faith or our trust in Him. Look at. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. Notice it didn't say, by works, many people will be justified by the knowledge of Christ. No, no. By his knowledge, by you putting your faith in him, which is what the New Testament declares to us, that's how we get saved. Look at Romans 4. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall, be ju- shall justify many, for he shall bear their sin or iniquities. What does Christ, what did Christ do by his death on the cross? He bore the sins of the world. This righteous Messiah was going to bear, this was supposed to bear the sins of all the world. Verse 12, therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because... So he'd be great. What did we read a couple weeks ago? The Bible says in the book of Revelation that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is the Son of God to the glory of God the Father. Verse 12 just told us. Therefore I, speaking, God speaking, I will divide him a portion with the great and he shall, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because why? So I'm going to make him great Because why? He poured out his soul unto death. 
He was numbered with the transgressors. He was numbered with the sinners. He was counted with them on the cross. And He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. The Bible says right now, Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of the Father praying for all of you Christians that are out there listening to this message or all the Christians all over the world. He prays for us. He makes intercession for us every single solitary day. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know about you at all. But all I know is that I see Jesus Christ as the one and the only one that's ever come on the face of the planet that's ever done those things that Isaiah chapter 53 talked about. And there's a whole lot more. Actually, there's hundreds of prophecies that Jesus Christ fulfilled by His coming into this world and the things that He did and the things that are still happening. There's hundreds. But this is just one chapter. This chapter, by the way, is so amazing, points to Christ so much, Christians say, that at one point, they, the Jews were denying the fact that this gospel, that this chapter of Isaiah wasn't added. They were, desi- they were denying the fact that it was actually real, authentic Jewish. They thought the Christians somehow mingled with the scripture and put Isaiah 53 in there just to, just to, you know, hey, look, look at all the things that this Messiah was supposed to do. And see, that's what Jesus did until, I believe it was in the 40s, when a young shepherd boy was hunting for his sheep in the hills of Qumran, Israel, by the Dead Sea. And he found what they call the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are documents that were predated before 100 B.C., where Christians weren't even in existence. And guess what? This chapter of Isaiah, chapter 53, was in the great scroll of Isaiah. Now in museums all over the world, this great Dead Sea Scroll, they call it the the great scroll of Isaiah, is in museums all over the world. This chapter pointed that much to Christ The Christians were like, how can you not believe that Jesus is the one when his life and what he did matched so closely with Isaiah 53? The Jews explained it away, and I don't know what they're doing with it now. Because we have proof in museums all over the world, the great Isaiah scroll, found, I believe, in the 40s in Israel, untainted, before the time of Christians. This chapter was in the great Isaiah scroll before Christ ever lived. What do you do now? What do you do now? This, this, this chapter points to only one man. Only one man that's ever lived. That matched up with those qualifications, with those things that happened here. You can start, you can start looking them over and there's countless things that this chapter talks about the Messiah that he was supposed to do. And guess what? Jesus did them all. There wasn't one of them that hasn't been done in this chapter of the Messiah. Christ fulfilled them. All I can say is, to me, if, and to you, if you're being honest with yourselves today, 
And you, you know, say to yourself, wow, I, I never even knew those facts about that book. I never even knew those facts about that chapter. I never even knew the Messiah was supposed to do those things. And, 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 and I know that Christ did them. I mean, when I was reading them, you should have been thinking, because I think everybody that's probably ever going to listen to this message knows the things that Christ went through and the things that he did. And to know that that was written, that he was supposed to do that six to eight hundred years before Christ lived. There's no way that anybody could have had anything to do with that to make that happen. Yet God foretold it so that we would know what to look for in the Messiah. So that somebody just couldn't stand up and say, I'm the one, believe in me, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Savior of the world, follow me. Salvation is in me. But Christ did it. Christ proclaimed it. And then Christ's life fulfilled the prophecy of that Isaiah chapter 53 chapter. What do you do? You can sit there in your seats and you could say, well, I'm just not going to believe because you're you're wrong. But am I wrong? Or is the scripture right? Let me be wrong, but you look to the Scriptures. What do the Scriptures say? Not what did I say. What do the Scriptures say? And what kind of life did Jesus Christ live? And you be the judge. Because I'll tell you, I see more in that chapter, more of Christ and his life, and I know the Gospels really well, than I do for anywhere else in the whole Bible and all the prophecy that God gave about the Messiah. If you see that today, and I prayed that God would open your eyes, if you are an unbeliever listening to this message today, then I hope and pray, and I will pray continually again, more and more till the day I die, that God will use that chapter as like the pea under the mattress. You guys remember the old, it, it, was a, it, was a, it was a fake kind of children's story. But you had the, the king was looking for the princess, I believe. And there was only one way that the king knew that this was to be the real princess. And he, he, he knew that the princess couldn't sleep but on anything but this mattress of just pure comfort. There couldn't be any, I believe it was the princess and the pea, if I'm not mistaken, was the name of the old story. And if there was anything under the mattress, the princess couldn't sleep. And therefore, that was how you knew that that was the real princess. And so they had in the story, they had in the kid's story, they had all kinds of princesses come in and lay down, sleep all night long and, you know, snooze all night long. And I'm the princess. See, I'm the one. See, look me. I'm the one. And the king would say, Nope, sorry, you're gone. Nope, sorry, you're gone. And countless ones would come and countless ones would go. And then the real princess heard about it and she comes and she sleeps on that mattress. And, but she can't sleep. And there's several mattresses on one another. I've seen different stories throughout the years. And there's several mattresses now. And, but yet she, she can't sleep. And she's tossing and turning and she can't sleep. And she comes to the king afterwards and the king says, This is my girl. How did they know? Because they knew that the princess couldn't sleep on the mattress if there was anything under it at all it was proof that that was the real princess of the king and if i got that story wrong in any way i didn't brush up on the details but if you've heard the story you know the details 
This <clears throat> chapter in Isaiah proves Christ, or Jesus, was the Christ. Jesus was the Messiah. Those are irrefutable things that were written six to 800 years before Christ lived. How can you deny them unless you want to be like those religious leaders that we read about last week where they saw his wondrous works and they despised him for it. They didn't repent even though they knew the things that he was doing. Nobody else could do those things except for the Messiah. So instead of repenting and changing their mind about who Jesus Christ really said he was and believing that he was who he said he was, they got more angry and they turned their hearts even harder and they, and they despised him. You today have that choice. You could have heard all the things we just talked about and say, oh, forget it, I'm angry. You didn't prove to me nothing. Or you can look at it honestly. And say, who else has done those things? Who else in the world's history has fulfilled those prophecies that that chapter of Isaiah has talked about? If you see that today, don't harden your hearts. Don't turn your heart away from God. Repent. That means change your mind about who Jesus was. Admit it that the scripture's right and you're wrong. Put down your pride, humble yourselves before the mighty hand of God, and turn to Jesus and start to worship Him. Surrender to Him and believe in Him today. This is what God wants. So that by His knowledge, that righteous servant of God, Jesus Christ, can justify you. Don't harden your heart. Let your heart be softened. God loves you so much. That's why he sent Jesus Christ. Because you can't work your way to heaven. You can't do enough good works in order to get to heaven. By your works, you will be condemned on the day of judgment. If the one thing God's looking for is not there. If his son Jesus Christ wasn't your Lord, wasn't your master, and you never repented, and started thinking right about him, and turned to him, and surrendered unto him. So please today, if you're not there with God, and you're listening to this message, and you're like, oh, you know, I, I saw the title, and you know, and I was just like, wow, I just got to listen to it. Maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. Well, you're wrong. Jesus was not just a man. He was not just a liar. He was not just a fraud. He was God's only real begotten son, the savior of the world. Come down to save you from your sins. Will you repent today? And will you turn to him? And will you start to worship him as the one who he really is, the very son of God? Turn to him today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this message, Lord. Thank you so much, Lord God, that you gave me this this week. And thank you so much, Lord God, for all the different details that we saw about the real Messiah that are in there. And how all those details, Lord God, they point to Jesus Christ 100%. There's not one thing in that whole chapter that doesn't identify Jesus as the Christ. Wow. Thank you so much, Lord God, for showing us that. Because, Lord, you only even had that chapter written because you cared about men's souls. 
You wanted to identify the Christ to people so that people would know him when he came and repent. Change their mind about him and believe and put their faith in him and surrender their lives to him. The Bible says, Lord God, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Lord, you are everything, Jesus. You are everything. I just pray, Lord Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, dear God, that you would change the people's hearts that are listening to this message and that they would turn to you and they would worship you and they would repent and believe in you. We love you, Lord God. We praise you and we thank you. And we ask these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Praise God, everyone. It's Pastor Ed here. and Thank you so much for listening to the message. It's my prayer that you were encouraged and challenged with what you heard today to be a doer of God's word and not a hearer only. Because your life will soon be passed and only what you've done for Jesus Christ will last. If you live in the Dallas, Texas area, we want to invite you to come to our little house church here in McKinney, Texas. Sunday mornings, our service is at 1015 and the directions can be found on our website. Also, if you have any prayer requests or questions or maybe you believe God has called you to support this church financially, please go to gospelsavingchurch.com and click on the appropriate links. I would love to hear from you personally. God loves you very much. Please love him back by the way you live your life. God bless you and have a wonderful day.